The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Father, as we in this month of January explore this issue of the church and what it means to be a supernatural community created by you, we pray that there would be a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit that opens up our heart to be able to understand what your will is for each one of us individually as well as together as a community. And so help us to um, live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have in Christ, that ICC would be able to stand on display to the glory of Christ. And everything we do, that it would not just be explainable by human means, but that people could look to what is happening in our midst and ultimately point to you and acknowledge your hand in it all. And so we want to turn to your word and be instructed by it at this time as we understand what your heart is for the community you've created. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said last week, in this month of January, we are looking into this issue of church. And the particular aspect of it we're looking at is the community created by God. And the theme verse for the series is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. It says, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as I said last week to introduce the series, the church is the ultimate expression of God's wisdom in the world. That's what the Apostle Paul says. In other words, if you want to understand what God is about, what he is accomplishing in our world, what the Bible says very clearly is that the first place to look is the church of Jesus Christ. The other passage that we looked at last week is Ephesians 2, verse 14 to 22. And because it is so foundational to this whole series, I wanted to take another look at it again as well. And it reads, For he himself is our peace, speaking of Jesus, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And so in essence, what Paul is saying is that by dying on the cross, Christ tore down this wall of hostility that existed between God and us. And so as we find that peace with God, a second wall of hostility is torn down, which is the hostility that exists among us as peoples. The message is that in the context of Paul, it was between the Jews and the Gentiles, but extended now even into our day, it's the sense that 
Whatever is the animosity that exists among us, when we are in Christ as fellow believers in Jesus, God has created a unity that previously did not exist. That all of the different backgrounds, all of the different ways in which we don't feel any sense of similarity with each other, because of what Christ has done, he suddenly creates a community out of us and brings us together to be one family. In other words, our common faith in Christ becomes a greater commonality that overcomes all the other differences that we have based on ethnicity or income level or geography or life stage or age or any of those things. What Paul is saying is none of those differences should matter nearly as much as the fact that we have Christ in common with each other. As a supernatural community created by God, then the church has what we could describe as supernatural breath. In other words, if someone looks at a local church and says, oh, I figured it out, I get why you guys are together. And if the truth is, we would all be hanging out with each other, even if we weren't believers, then I think you could really honestly say there's something wrong with that community, right? There ought to be some aspect of breath, meaning that Sometimes when you look at the church, you say like, well, this is kind of a funny group of people to be all sitting under one roof together. And hopefully there ought to be something like that spoken in every local church to say that this is an act of God. This is something that we cannot explain by any other way Then there's got to be some ingredient here that is bringing these people into a family like this. That's our focus for last week's message as well as today's message is supernatural breath. But then we can also say that this community created by God ought to be characterized also by supernatural depth. In other words, the relationships that we experience with one another ought to go so much deeper than as if we were just a social club. You know, it's talking about a commitment level that resembles much more an actual family in terms of what we're willing to do for one another and the depths to which we will go to show love to each other. And so that supernatural depth dimension of the church is what we're going to explore in the next two two weeks to come. Okay. I was thinking about this whole idea of Christ tearing down walls of hostility among us, and it made me sort of think about this whole issue of the food laws that existed in the Old Testament. Now, if you know the Old Testament law, when God gave the law to Moses, he basically included in that law a whole list of what he called clean and unclean foods. And the list is extensive about what you could eat and what you could not eat. Um, Now, there were a lot of issues raised as to why God added this. Like, Why does it matter what you eat or what you don't eat because you're a Jew? And so a lot of theories were thrown out to try to figure it out. And a lot of people speculated maybe it has to do with dietary health concerns. You know, that uh, God was concerned about their health. And so he forbade them from eating things that were going to be bad for their health. But I don't think really that's the point, okay? Um, Most of us know that Jews cannot eat pork. Okay, Uh, that's a pretty obvious one. But the list of animals is really long. I mean, it includes camels, hares, mice, ferrets, eagles, bats, 
lizards, frogs, owls, snails, tortoises. These are all animals that Jews cannot eat, even today. Okay? Um, and you, you look at this list and, you know, you say like, oh, well, gee, I always wanted to taste eagle, you know, but I guess that's a bad food, you know? So, so you, you cannot eat that because it's unclean, okay? Why did God do this? The main issue is not about health. It's about fellowship. To keep the Israelites as a distinct and separate people from the other nations. They were given these food laws. One of the most important ways that we distinguish ourselves as unique among other people is by what we eat and what we don't eat, right? That's true even today. Food, in other words, is one of the most powerful symbols of identity and community. Uh, It is hard to have fellowship with someone who eats stuff that you consider unclean and vice versa. The memories are still very vivid to me, maybe because it scarred me of the revulsion on my classmates' faces when one day as a little grade schooler, I was confronted by them and was asked, do Koreans really eat dogs? (laughs) I didn't know Koreans ate dogs because I grew up in America. So I went home and asked my parents, do Koreans eat dogs, you know? Um, Americans are equally horrified to find out that many Europeans find horse meat a delicacy, you know? If you go to the finest steak restaurants in Europe, one of the top steaks you can order is horse steak, okay? You see why? Because in American culture, dogs and horses are in the non-food category, right? Cows, kill them and eat them all, right? They're just walking hamburgers, right? Who, who cares about cows, right? But dogs and horses, that's just gross. There's something wrong and unnatural about that. So it's interesting that in the book of Acts, when God wants to begin a new work to send these Jewish believers into Gentile communities to witness to them, he prepares it through food, a vision of food. In Acts chapter 10, it says in verses 9 to 16, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being led down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And it's interesting that right after that vision, this God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius approaches Peter and it opens up this whole new door of gospel witness to the Gentiles through these Jewish believers. But before that witness could happen, this wall needed to be torn down, didn't it? Right? Because if I refuse to even step foot in your house because of the junk you eat that I consider disgusting, how can I possibly have fellowship with you? 
And so God prepared that road through this vision to Peter. And through this vision, God was telling Peter that these food laws that once separated Jews from Gentiles was being destroyed through what Christ has done. Now all food was declared clean. Snails, have at it, you know? Eagle, if you can kill one, eat it, okay? It's just pretty much everything is clean. You can eat whatever you want. But what I want you to notice particularly is how repulsed, how utterly disgusted Peter is at what God tells him to do. Because you can understand that. Your entire life you consider this to be food you cannot eat. This is not food, and suddenly God is telling you to eat it. And you can understand the, the resistance in Peter's heart. I think Peter's reaction illustrates how even if Jesus tears down walls of hostility among us, there still is a work that needs to be done in our hearts, isn't there? To accept others into our fellowship. To overcome what have been our biases and our our sort of our judgments toward other cultures and other people and to say, can I really be in fellowship with these people? This is a lesson that God had to teach me as a missionary in Kenya. Shortly after arriving in Kenya, we had our first weekly worship service that we held every Sunday night. And I've shared this before with you in the past, but um, seated around that circle was basically a Canadian a New Zealander, a German, an Australian, a couple Kenyans, and then our family. And because most of the long-term missionaries were on furlough when we arrived, even though it was my first week, I was sort of put in charge of the worship time. And so I found these British songbooks in this unoccupied house in the mission station, and they had over 200 songs in it. And so I found a dozen of them, and I handed them out to the circle. And we literally went through the entire songbook to try to find one song that we all knew in common. And we could not find one song that everyone knew. The closest we got is this old school song. I don't even know if you know it, called Pass It On. Do you guys know that song, Pass It On? It only takes a spark to get it. I don't even want to sing it, but about half of us knew that song, Pass It On. And so it wasn't enough to sing it, so we just put the songbooks away. And we ended up singing God is so good <laughs> about 20 times, okay, as our worship. We're just kidding. God is so good. God is so good. And let me say this. is When I got home that night, uh, after that fellowship time and worship time was done, um, I felt so alone. I felt so lonely. I felt so homesick. And I remember that night having this feeling of thinking, how is this place ever going to be my community, my family? I have almost nothing in common with these people. <laughs> like, I can't even sing the songs that are so meaningful to me because no one else knows them. Because they didn't sing them in Australia or Canada or wherever. But over those five years in, in, in Africa, um, in that small mission community, we saw God transform us to a group of ragtag people that came from all over the world into a genuine family of God. And I want to tell you that by the time that I left after those five years, I had experienced some of the most powerful moments of worship 
and fellowship with that group of missionaries who at some human level were so different than me. And yet as we found Christ together, there was something so incredibly powerful about that experience. It was like Peter being told to eat this unclean animal and saying, I can't. And yet God said, what I have declared clean, don't you call unclean. I am breaking down the walls of hostility that exist among you so that you can come together and be one people, one family, one single community. And I want to say this. I think one of the ways that God transforms a group of ragtag people from so many different backgrounds into a community is through the ministry of hospitality. The ministry of hospitality. And that's what I want to unpack for you this morning, is to talk about what the Bible teaches about hospitality. Um, I think we typically just associate hospitality with having someone over for dinner, right? That's, when you think of hospitality, I think probably that's the image that comes to mind for most of us, having someone over for dinner. But I'm going to actually argue that the picture of hospitality as a ministry is much fuller, much deeper than that in the Bible. The word hospitality itself is xenophilia, or philoxenia, actually, which is a combination of two Greek words. Philia, which is love, combined with xenos, which means stranger. And so if you put those two words together, what the word hospitality literally means is loving strangers, loving strangers. Hospitality is, in essence, extending the benefits of community to someone who is normally would not be the recipient of that community, someone who is outside of your social circles, whom you would normally not share that level of fellowship with. That is the essence of hospitality. We see this idea of the stranger's theme highlighted in Hebrews 13, verse 1 to 2, when it says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So again, it's highlighted hospitality to strangers. The key idea behind hospitality is that you're extending a hand of friendship. You're extending care to somebody that naturally would not be a recipient of that level of commitment from you. Interestingly, though, the New Testament also commands Christians to show hospitality to fellow believers. I think from a missional standpoint of being an evangelistic tool going to unbelievers, it's pretty obvious, right? Saying, oh yeah, hospitality to strangers. But interestingly, this command of hospitality is also given within the family of God itself. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, it says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Raises a question, doesn't it? If the focus of hospitality is on showing consideration to those who are not part of your normal social circles, then why are we commanded to do this within the church? And I think at least part of the answer is that even within the church, we naturally reach out to some people and tend to ignore or disregard others. In other words, what I'm saying is even within the church, there are people that we treat as strangers, aren't there? 
Um, like I said, it, for five years, you know, our family lived as missionaries in Africa. And our relocation to Kenya was a really rough one. Uh, with four little children in tow, uh, with one other one coming on the way because Betty was seven months pregnant when we left for the field in 2004. I think both of us felt overwhelmed by the unknowns of trying to make a whole new life in such a remote part of Kenya. And on that first day we arrived and pulled into that mission station, I think both of us were incredibly nervous and uneasy about what kind of welcome we would receive and whether we would get along with these people that we would have to work with. And there was this um, Canadian nurse named Arlene. Uh, Our children would come to know her affectionately as Auntie Arlene. And what she had done, she was one of the veteran missionaries that she had been there for over 25 years in Capsuar. And when we got into the house that was assigned to us at the mission station, um, we got in there and in the children's rooms, uh, Arlene had decorated all the walls with these really cute uh, animal posters of animals in Africa. And then each child had a little bucket with their name on it. And inside that little bucket were all these little stickers and trinkets and things like that. And the kids just giggled over it because after we were literally traveling from New York to get out there, it, it took almost two weeks of travel to finally arrive at our destination. And the kids were exhausted and they were scared. They were, you know, we try to prep them for life in Africa as best as we can. But the truth was, they looked like little mice, like cornered and huddled. Like, it just, they couldn't imagine what life was going to be like out there. But when they saw those little buckets and they got into them, they were suddenly lighting up. And then that evening, Arlene had us over for an unbelievable home-cooked meal that she cooked for us in her own house. And so we had this amazing dinner and then hours of conversation in our living room afterward. And what I want to say is this. Through these small but thoughtful acts of hospitality, Arlene was giving a message to our scared and uncomfortable family. You're a part of this community. You're welcomed here. We're so glad you've come. We're so glad you're here. And I want to say this. By the time that I went to bed that night, I think both Betty and I believed that this little remote hill in Africa could actually feel like home one day. And that was the power of the hospitality that was shown to us that day. That's the power of hospitality. Helping the stranger to feel a part of a community like they belong. What I want to ask you is this. Who are the people who may feel like strangers at ICC? Which ethnic groups are likely to feel marginalized? Which age groups may feel neglected? Who is likely to feel overlooked or ignored in our community? Because the truth is there are some who feel that way in our midst. And I want to argue that these are the people that need our special attention and love and hospitality as a community. My prayer is that even through the course of this message, that through the Holy Spirit that flashes the faces that are in this room 
may be brought to your attention of people that God is convicting you to extend hospitality toward. Romans 12.13 says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. I want you to notice the connection between helping people in need and this ministry of hospitality. Like I said, when we think of the word hospitality, we most often just think about having someone over for dinner. But that's actually not the way hospitality was understood in the ancient times. It may involve having someone over for dinner, but it was much more than that because life was much harsher than it is today. The typical picture is of a person traveling, and when they arrive, they have nowhere to go. You know, you don't have supermarkets or hotels in those days. And so that person needed all the help possible when they don't have the network of friends and family to help them out. We understood this dynamic of hospitality when we were missionaries in Africa. Because anyone who would visit us, we had to take care of everything for them. You know, when someone would come from the United States or visit from the UK or Canada, it's like they come not knowing where we are. We lived out in the bush in the middle of nowhere. And so when they arrive, you realize you have to have everything. You have to cook a meal for them because they have no groceries, they have no food, there are no restaurants to go to. You have, they're like little children. You've know, got to set everything out for them because otherwise they'll die out there. You know? They're not going to survive. It's, it was a matter of survival. And I, I think that is the basic idea behind hospitality as we see it in the New Testament. It's basically saying... It's about helping somebody, extending friendship in any need that they may have. And it's particularly looking to those who you don't feel obligated to help, but saying, I'm going to do what I can to help that person out in their moment of need. So what does it mean to practice hospitality as a church? Well, I want you to go back to what I said earlier, right? If we keep in mind that the goal of hospitality is to offer the experience of community to those that we would normally not extend it to, then I think it opens actually a whole list of creative ways that we can show hospitality to the people in our church. I do think inviting people over to your house for a meal is a wonderful idea. And I know that some of us fear it because either we're too busy to cook or we're not very good cooks. But if that's your case, just cater the food. It's okay. It's not the biggest deal to cater a meal, even if you have guests over. But even more than just having people over to your house for dinner, I just want you to think about if that is my fundamental goal, is how can I reach out to someone in this church who may struggle with finding community here and making them feel more at home, What are the things that I could do to make it easier for them? Maybe it may be something as simple as greeting a newcomer that comes to our church. Maybe the truth is, with all the new faces that we're seeing in our church, you've never felt obligated to say hi to any of them. Say, well, I don't know them. I don't know where they come from. They're probably the friend of somebody here. And so it's not my problem, you know. Um, What I'm saying is this. You, You don't have to be on the welcoming team to welcome somebody. If somebody looks lost, you can ask them, are you new here? Can I help you out? And if they're trying to figure out where to register their kids, don't just point over there. Why don't you just escort them and bring them to the registration table and say, you know, this is whoever, you know, and then get their kids registered in and walk them 
to the kids' classroom and see if they need any help. Okay. Um, how about just sitting with some new families during the fellowship time? I think one of the habits we can get into during the fellowship hour is to always sit with our own inner circle of friends that we sit with each week. And maybe one of the ways that you could extend hospitality is before you even sit down with your plate, canvas the room and see who is there that I really don't know in this room and maybe is sitting by themselves and I can extend hospitality to them and let them know that we're glad you're here and we're thankful for your presence. I know that there's some traditions in our church of families vacationing together. Every year in the summer, you guys go out somewhere together, whether it's the Dells or Lake Geneva or something like that. Why not invite one of the newer families in our church to join your group when you go on vacation this year? I, the list could go on and on, but I think the bottom line is this, is who can I extend a hand of friendship to that in all natural circumstances, I wouldn't because of God's love. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 to 9 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Like in Romans, that Romans 13 passage we looked at, we see the command for Christians to show hospitality toward one another. But in this passage, there is an additional command, and it's to do so without grumbling. It's interesting that Peter adds this comment in his command. And I think it's because the truth is, all of us have at least a small circle of family and friends that we would naturally help in a moment of crisis. And the truth is, you would expect them to do the same for you, if the roles were reversed. But in truth, there are plenty of people outside that circle that you feel no obligation toward, no responsibility for when they're in need. And I think the truth is we intentionally keep that inner circle small because the truth is it's very costly to offer that level of help and support. Community is costly. It's costly. It infringes on our privacy and invades our private space. It may cost us money. It will cost us time. But I think what Peter is saying is the essence of hospitality as a ministry is that you intentionally enlarge that circle beyond your comfort zone. And out of that can come a real struggle in the heart. Why is this person's need my problem just because we go to the same church, you know? Why do I need to get involved? It's inconvenient to share that burden, to care for others as if they were your own family. But I think Peter is in essence saying, practice hospitality, love those outside your normal circles, and like it while you're doing it. And I think it's clear that this is a work that God has to do in our hearts. It's about a love that doesn't come from us, but has to come from others, from, from God toward others. John Piper says this, The most natural thing in the world is to neglect hospitality. 
It is the path of least resistance. All we have to do is yield to the natural gravity of our self-centered life. And the result will be a life so full of self that there is no room for hospitality. We will forget about it, and we will neglect it. When we practice hospitality, here's what happens. We experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality rather than being self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. You know, I grew up in a home that was on a cul-de-sac. Do you know what a cul-de-sac is? Basically a dead end, right? That's the neighborhood I grew up in. Now, that's not the actual picture. That's not the house I grew up in. Uh, but it looked very similar to that, that, that kind of a circle where the road just ends. It's interesting when you live in a cul-de-sac because nobody comes to your neighborhood unless you belong there. In fact, there was a sign right at the start of our street that said no outlet. And it made it very clear to strangers, don't turn into this road unless you have a purpose being there, you know, because it doesn't go anywhere. It ends in a dead end, okay? And as a result, that little circle of houses, it was really a tightly knit community, you know? We all knew each other really well. In fact, one of the families was sending us gifts even when we went to Africa every Christmas, you know, because... They just loved us so much. And you would see little kids riding their tricycles and bicycles in the street. And it was almost like the 1950s, you know, because there's no tr- through traffic. You know, no one drives through our street because it's a dead end. And so you would see, you know, housewives out there talking to each other as they're walking their little strollers around and things like that. That was the street that I grew up in. And it made for an incredibly cozy community. But, as John Piper alludes to, what may be good for neighborhood design is not a good approach to life. And and I want to actually challenge some of you this morning that maybe the truth is you've painted yourself into a cul-de-sac. You have this cozy inner circle of family and friends. And you've got a big no-outlet sign at the start of your street, a do-not-enter sign to let strangers know that they don't belong there. And I want to challenge you that maybe what God is inviting you to is to discover this ministry of hospitality, to let what you have received from God flow into the life of other people who are desperately in need of experiencing community. How do you become this kind of person that can be generous in hospitality toward others? I think, as Scripture makes it clear, the only way this happens is if you first experience that hospitality of God toward you. And what the Scriptures say is that the cross of Christ is the greatest display of God's hospitality toward us. In 1 Peter 2, verse 10, it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's what the gospel says to each of us. Is do you realize that once you were on the margins, you were on the outside. You were not part of the community of God. But because of what Christ has done, he brought you into this family. 
and allowed you to experience community in your life. And out of the riches of that understanding of God's love for me, I want others to experience that same hospitality and love and community. That's the only way hospitality and community can truly happen. We can't turn it into a program or a ministry or sign up more people in our welcoming team and have more ushers. It just doesn't work that way, does it? It has to be God doing work in your own heart, melting that wall of hostility, melting that self-centeredness, and extending a hand of friendship to somebody that you normally would never think to cross path with and have fellowship with. Let's pray.